Hello and welcome to TanakhStudy.com. This is Shani Tarragon and today we're going to conclude with the final of the obligatory offerings mentioned in Parashat Vayikra, namely the Karban Asham. As we've seen with the Karban Chatat, the Mila Mancha is going to be the term of Kapara, the Chiper. The goal of both the obligatory offerings of the Chatat and the Asham are not as we've seen by the Olam and Chan Shlamim, the Korbanot Nedava, the voluntary offerings, L'Reach Nichoach Lahashem, to allow for a closer relationship with God manifest through a beautiful fragrance that is expressed towards Hashem, but rather Vachapara. The focus is on the Nefesh Kitachata, the one who sins, and how one is going to regain some level of intense closeness with Hashem, how he's going to somehow bridge the rift that he created between himself and God. The last Karban dealt with in the Parsha, Karban Hashem, atones for three general categories of sins. We're going to note that beginning in chapter 5, verse 14, we hear of the accidental use of Hekdesh, known as Asham Ilot, when one takes objects that were meant to be used in the Mikdash and uses them for one's own purpose, followed by verse 17, when one is unsure if he sins at all, and this is known as an Asham Talui, an uncertain type of Korban, and the last, beginning in verse 20, depicting the guilt offering for theft. The first and the third are sins that the sinner is definitely aware that he has transgressed, and therefore the Korban Asham that he brings is called an Asham Vadai, a certain or a definite guilt offering. The middle sin involves some level of doubt. In other words, the person is unsure whether he transgressed or not, and the offering is therefore called an Asham Taloi, a contingent guilt offering. It protects him temporarily from punishment at the hands of heaven until he clarifies whether he actually committed the sin, in which case he then must bring the appropriate sacrifice, usually a karban chatat. What we're going to do now is examine each one of these three sins as we read the psukim very carefully and note what is unique about each one. So as we open to verse 14, which begins with its own p'tichat tibur, v'yidabar Adonai amoshel limor, Nefesh kitim ol ma'al, v'chata b'shkaga mikotshe Adonai, v'evi'a tashamo l'Adonai, ayel tamim min hatzon, v'erkacha kesef shkalim b'shekel hakodesh l'asham. If anyone commits such a ma'al, some level of trespassing, and this is done b'shkaga, through error, with regard to holy things that belong to Hashem, then he must bring his korban asham, a level of forfeiting, or as we'll see, mending the relationship with Hashem. But this time, unlike the general korban chatat, which requires the layman to bring either a female goat or lamb, or in the case of the olevio raid, the ascending and descending korban chatat, which allowed for some latitude for the sinner to bring either the standard chatat, the female lamb or goat, or even the possibility of fowl, and if he really cannot afford to then bring the olevio raid, the chatat from flower, by the asham we find that one brings the most expensive of the animals, the ram, the ayel, and this must be without blemish, according to uh, the value of the shkalim as a guilt offering. Vet asher chatam en hakodesh yishalem, vet chamishato yosif alav en atanoto la kohen, va kohen yechaper alav be'el hasham v'nislachlo. 
And if one, in fact, has taken from something holy of Hashem, it's not enough just to return the value of what he took, but rather must add, as some level of a fine, a fifth to that value, and then give it to the Kohen, representative of returning this item that he took from Hashem. And through this, he achieves kapara, in addition to bringing the karvan asham, in addition to the ram, and then he shall be forgiven. The transgression referred to here in the case of asham ilot is an unintentional appropriation of sanctified objects. The Rambam teaches us that it is forbidden, based on these psukim, for a layman to have benefit from the holy things that belong to Hashem. If he derives such benefit unintentionally, then he pays the amount that he benefited, plus a fifth, as we've seen, and brings a ram, which is worth at least two slaim, offering it as a guilt offering as it atones for him. This asham ilot requires payment of the capital, plus a fifth when he brings the sacrifice as a positive commandment. Let us continue now with verse 17, where we see the contingent guilt offering known as the Asham Taloi. Ve'im nefesh kitachata, ve'esta achat mikol mitzvot Adonai, asher lo te'asena, ve'lo yada ve'ashem, ve'nasa avono. And if one sins, one of these commandments, and he did not know whether or not he in fact sinned, he doesn't know whether he's really guilty, he still has to bear his iniquity. That's a case where he does not yet bring a chatat. He doesn't bring his she-goat or his female lamb, but rather brings a ram without blemish from the flock according to its value as a karban asham to the kohen, who will sacrifice the korban as kapara concerning the possibility of a sin that he committed, whether he knew it or not. Ashamhu, ashom asham ladunai. This is a guilt offering, for he is certainly guilty before Hashem. Note how the Torah explicates the level of his asham, his sentiment of guilt that he must carry with him, even though somewhat ironically, he's not even sure that he really sinned. This is all the more difficult as we compare this korban, the korban of the asham taloi, with a chatat, a sacrifice that one brings when one knows that one has sinned, albeit unintentionally. One notes how the guilt offering, the karban asham, is related to the individual sin offering, the karban chatat, already in the terminology used to introduce the respective karbanot. The karban chatat begins with an individual of the common people, the layman, if he sins unintentionally by committing one of God's mitzvot, things that should not be done, and is guilty, is very similar to the way that the Karban Asham is introduced here, the Asham Taloi, beginning of verse 17. And if an individual sins and commits any of God's mitzvot, things that should not be done, and he did not know, and he was guilty, then he shall bear his sin. And respectively, the endings of, firstly, the Karban Chatat, the Kohen shall atone for him for the sin that he committed, and he shall be forgiven, is very similar to the end of the Asham Taloi, Bevi Ayel Tamim, Bechiper Alafa Kohen, Al Shigigato Asher Shagag, Vuhulo Yada, Benislachlo, the Kohen shall atone for him for his unintentional sin that he committed, for he did not know, and he shall be forgiven. 
A superficial glance would seem to give the impression that these two sacrifices are required in the same circumstances, namely a sin committed unintentionally and the performance of an act that transgresses any of the negative mitzvot. Why then does the sinner in chapter 4 bring as a sin offering a female goat or a female lamb, while the sinner in chapter 5 brings an unblemished ram as a guilt offering, a much more expensive and elaborate sacrifice for apparently the same act? A closer look, however, reveals that the circumstances in which the two sacrifices are brought are in fact quite different one from the other. In chapter 4, the obligation to bring the sacrifice applies if his sin that he committed becomes known to him. Whereas in chapter 5, we read exactly the opposite. He did not know and is guilty and he bears his sin. But then all the more so. If the sinner does not know that he sinned, then how can he even bring a sacrifice? Rashi answers as follows. This matter refers to someone who is in doubt as to whether he has committed something that is punishable by karit. He is uncertain as to whether he transgressed or not. For example, the classic case of an asham taloi, someone who had both permitted and forbidden animal fats. We've already learned of the shuman and the chilev. He had them both before him, and he believed that both were permissible to him, and he ate one of them. Only thereafter, he was told that one of the fats was in fact chilev, the forbidden one, and he's unsure whether it was the one of chilev that he ate. For this, he brings the asham taloi, a contingent guilt offering, and this protects him for so long as he is not certain that he sinned. If at a later date the situation becomes clarified, then he brings a karban chatat, the regular sin offering. The purpose then of the asham taloi, according to Rashi, is to protect one in an ambiguous situation. It is not clear whether he or she sins, and living with Hashem in one's midst means that one has to protect oneself even in the face of the possibility of sinning. But while one is in abeyance, why does one have to offer the more expensive offering of the ram as opposed to a female goat or lamb? Apparently, the Torah is teaching us that there is something inherently wrong in finding oneself in a situation where one has sins and does not even know whether or not what he committed was in fact iniquitous. In other words, he is completely unaware of his actions or surroundings or doesn't take the time to clarify the situation. It's one thing if one is sensitive to the fact that he committed a crime, albeit bishogeg, unintentionally, as opposed to not even having that consciousness. It is the lack of consciousness or sensitivity of our own actions that requires us to bring the karban asham from an ayol. Let's take a look now at the third category of the asham that begins in verse 20 with a new p'tichatibor suggesting a unique quality in this final group. Nefesh ki umala mal badonai v'chichesh b'amito b'pikadon o b'tzumet yad o b'gazel o ashak amito. If anyone sins, committing a mi'ila, a trespassing against Hashem, and deals falsely with his neighbor in the matter of a deposit or a pledge or robbery, or has oppressed his neighbor, or he found something that was lost and he dealt with it falsely as well by swearing with a lie that he didn't know of it. And in any of these, he has thereby sinned. 
Then if he has sinned and he's in fact guilty, he has to first return what he took through robbery or what he has taken through oppression or a deposit that he really had and denied having or the lost thing that he found and denied finding. Anything that he swore about falsely that he said did not belong to him or that he did not find or he did not have in his possession, he must restore it in full and then add a fifth of the value to that principle onto the person that he stole or swore or denied the possession from. That is part of his ashma. That is part of his being guilty. In addition to paying the principal with a fine, he must also bring the korban asham without any blemish, according to uh, the value for a guilt offering to the priest. And it's the priest who makes atonement for him before Hashem, and he shall be forgiven, considering the guilt that he performed. The unique quality in this final group of Hashem is that the sins in this category all involve intentional transgressions, bimezid, against someone else. The previous cases of Hashem, by contrast, are inadvertent sins, bishogeg, against God. The sin against God in all of these categories is in fact that he took something that did not belong to him, but rather belonged to someone else and swore falsely that it was not in his possession, whether it was a picadon, a deposit he was given, or a pledge, or something he had stolen from someone else, or even a lost object that was found and he denied having it in his possession. But this is very strange because it seems quite hypocritical for one who sins intentionally against God to bring a korban. The korban chovah is intended for a person who strives for closeness with Hashem but has inadvertently sinned. The obligation to bring a korban teaches him to be more careful. So why should the Torah allow one who sins intentionally against God the opportunity to cover up his guilt? The Mishkan is meant to be an environment where man develops spiritual perfection, not self-deception. Why then would the Torah provide for a korban asham in the case of intentional sin? If we re-examine the last four psukim, we may extrapolate what is so unique about this category. Once one regrets, feels a sense of ashma, of guilt for what he did, for what he stole, for what he denied belonging to another, and he returns the item to the victim. It is not enough that he returns the object, but he must add the penalty of a fifth of its value. Here we find that the Torah grants the thief perjurer atonement through an asham, but only after he first repays his victim with an added one-fifth penalty. Then, Only then may he bring a korban asham to Hashem. But at this point, why should a korban be necessary at all? After all, the victim was repaid and even received a bonus. So why should Hashem even be involved? The standard explanation is that the thief sins against Hashem by lying under oath. And although this is undoubtedly the primary reason for the necessity of a sacrifice, 
The question still remains. So then why does he bring specifically an Hashem? All other instances of perjury require the Chatat o Levi Ored, as we learned about in chapter 5, verse 4. Let us note a textual parallel between this parsha of Hashem Gzelot and the previous parsha of Hashem Mi'ilot that may provide the answer. The parsha of Hashem Gzelot begins as follows in verse 21. Nevesh ki mal if a person sins and trespasses against Hashem, ma'al ma'al, and ultimately denies something to his friend, the pasuk defines the transgression, although it's against one's neighbor, as mi'ila b'Hashem, taking away something that belongs to God. This is the very same phrase that described the first case of the Hashem mi'ilot, the unintentional embezzlement of hektesh. Nefesh kitimol mal b'Hashem, a person who appropriates property, thereby sinning unintentionally from God's holy things. The Torah views stealing from a fellow man with the same severity as stealing from God. So from this parallel, the Torah is teaching us that unethical behavior towards one neighbor does not just taint one's relationship with him, but also with one's relationship with Hashem. It is not enough then just to return the stolen object. The Karban Hashem, in fact, deals with one's restoration of a relationship with Hashem. The guilt offering atones specifically for the sin of trespassing against God's property, Mi'ilah. It also teaches that if a person denies his neighbor's monetary claim against him and makes a false oath in this regard, although this is a sin, Ben Adam Lachavero, between man and his fellow man, there is an aspect that resembles appropriation of God's property. Under these circumstances, one must bring the Karban Hashem. Or in other words, the category of Hashem Gzelot is in fact very similar, or at least we're supposed to see it, as similar to the first category of Hashem Mi'ilot. This parallel highlights then the question of the order. Why does the Torah separate the appropriation of God's property from the other sin that textually is compared to it, the denial and false oath concerning a monetary claim of someone else? Why place the Asham Taloi, the contingent guilt offering, between both cases of an Asham Vadai, both cases where one knows in a certain manner that one has sinned against God? Rav Hanan points out that it is not the legal nature of the sins that determines their order, but rather the nature of the atonement of the kapara achieved by the sacrifice in each respective instance. In the case of swearing falsely for a deposit, a stolen object, a lost object that was found, atonement is achieved through the karban asham, even in the case of one who commits the sin knowingly. There's no mention in the psukim of vene elamlo, that it was hidden from him, or no mention of bishogeg, bishkaga, that it was unintentional. Whereas the other two sins for which the guilt offering atones have mention of both of these. In the case of Ashami Ilot, where one has appropriated God's holy things for personal usage, the Torah mentions bishgaga, this was unintentional. Or in the case of Anasham Talui, where there was a questionable transgression of a sin involving karet, the term was veloyada, he did not know. Now we understand that while on one hand, the Asham Gzelot is very similar to Asham Ilot, and that both are taking objects that really do belong to Hashem, even if in the latter case, one is really stealing Ben Adam Lachavero. On the other hand, they are not going to be juxtaposed one to the other, 
in order to appreciate that there's a difference between the Asham Gezelot and the other two sins, first two intentional and the last unintentional. That is why there is not only a separation between them, but also a new Ptichatibur. The Asham Gezelot is introduced as a new speech of Hashem given to Moshe. For those of you paying very close attention, this should remind you of the exact structure that we mentioned with regard to the Karban Chatat of Olev Yoreh, the ascending and descending sin offering that is given in three circumstances. The first circumstance, if you remember, was Shvu'at Ha'idut, wherein a witness who has testimony to offer takes upon an oath that they are unable to testify. Such a person requires the ascending and descending offering, whether they committed this knowingly or unintentionally. For the Torah does not say, and he was unaware, for in many circumstances, he was in fact very aware. This is different than the two ensuing cases of a chatat raid, of defiling the mikdash and its sacrifices, or shvuat bitui, and albeit similar, the different forms of accepting an oath in the case of testimony, or in the case of violating an oath, are separated in order for us to distinguish between the first case of shvuat dut, which we said may be committed knowingly, intentionally, versus the other two cases. This is very similar to what we found in the Karban Hashem. The cases of Hashem Mi'ilot and Hashem Taloi are clearly both unintentional, whether one mistakenly appropriated God's holy things or is really unaware of one's surroundings. These are both cases where one brings the ayil as a guilt offering, as opposed to what we just mentioned of Hashem Gzelot, even though it's similar to appropriating God's property, basically one has falsely sweared about a deposit that belonged to someone else, and thereby, even if committed knowingly, he may still offer a karban Hashem in order to bridge the rift created between not only he and his fellow man, but ultimately he and Akadosh Baruch Hu. And therefore, the last two parshiot of Chatat Olevi Ored and the karban Hashem have a relationship of a chiastic correspondence. Shvuat Ha'idut, even intentional, followed by two unintentional cases, and the Asham, two unintentional cases, followed by an intentional case, forming with each one two equal halves, each consisting of exactly 13 verses. The Torah is teaching us that albeit one is called a Chatat and the other an Asham, the former requiring a female goat or lamb, the latter requiring a ram, the two are similar, in the regard that one may achieve kapara, one may atone for both. We've already seen that in the case of the Asham Taloi, the contingent guilt offering, one is held responsible even for acts that one is unaware of, teaching us to be more alert, more cognizant of what we do. We're held accountable even for unintentional appropriation or misappropriation of God's holy things because this also expresses a certain level of negligence or lack of awareness. The Karban Asham teaches us that we're held responsible for our negligent behavior, not only for the acts themselves, but for the lack of awareness that accompanies them. The expensive ram offering is meant to serve then as a deterrent to be much more conscious, much more alert, much more sensitive, and much more wary of our actions. At the same time, the Torah tells us that sentiments of ashma, of guilt, are not meant to stay with us because they will also hold us back. Compunctions may stifle us and keep us farther from the mikdash, feeling that we can't regain a relationship with God. And that's why it's imperative to understand the chiper alav hakohen lefnei Hashem, v'neslach lo alachat mikol asher yase la ashma ba. 
that there is a way of atoning, of protecting, and of wiping away in order to move towards the future and return to a state of kirva lahashem through a karban. Parshat Payikra has focused on how as an individual we approach the Mishkan, how we get closer to Hashem, with sacrifices of both voluntary and obligatory nature, beginning with the Yola and Menchat Ola that express the Yirah, the awe of God as the maker and sustainer of life, the Karban Shlamim, an expression and desire to get close to God through Ahava, through love, followed by the obligatory sacrifices of the Chatat and the Hashem that remind us that we have a sense of responsibility and accountability to God at all times. Now that we're all more familiar with the Karbanot, we are going to revisit them as we approach next week, Parshat Sav. But this time, we're going to examine the same sacrifice from the perspective of the Kohanim and their relationship with the Mikdash. Or in other words, once the individual brings the Karban, whether it's the Ola, the Mincha, the Shlamim, the Chatat, and the Asham, then how does the Kohen relate to the sacrifice? Both from the moment of slaughtering through the consumption thereof, and his interaction with the Baal HaKarba. I look forward to next week, and in the meantime, may Shabbat bring a greater understanding, appreciation, and ultimately, enthusiasm for appreciating all the more. Adam Kerkriv Karban Lahashem. Shabbat Shalom and Chodesh Tov.